This election were overturned by mere allegations from the losing side. Our democracy would enter a death spiral. Oh. Welcome to the death spiral. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Remember when McConnell used I to care? I got a feeling that something right. Used to pretend I'm that so he cared. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. That was fun. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst others, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, Great to have you here. Writing at slate.com on Thursday, University of California, Irvine, election law professor Rick Hassan wrote... It's been almost a week since the Supreme Court issued its most significant ruling on voting rights in nearly a decade. And each time I read Justice Sam Alito's majority opinion in Brnovich v. Democratic National Committee, the angrier I become. I'm angry, he writes, not only about what the court did, but also about how much of the public does not realize what a hit American democracy has taken. In his opinion, thick with irony, uh, Hassan writes, Justice Alito turned back the clock on voting rights. His decision for the 6-3 right-wing majority reopens the door to a United States in which states can put up roadblocks to minority voting and engage in voter suppression with few legal consequences once a state has raised tenuous and unsupported concerns about the risk of voter fraud. It's exactly the opposite of what Congress intended, notes Hassan, when it strengthened Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in 1982. Describing the opinion as, quote, perverse, Hassan goes on to describe how Alito specifically, specifically ignored the express intent of Congress in its legislation of the Voting Rights Act, further gutting the landmark law after it similarly gutted what had been the key section of the law back in 2013's Shelby County versus Holder case at the Supreme Court. 
Hassan concludes, quote, Justice Alito and the other conservative justices are leading the United States back to a time when racial discrimination in voting was easy, voting lawsuits hard and political activity conducted behind a veil of secrecy. He says that probably fills Justice Alito, who has long shown hostility to voting rights, with nostalgia. Those may have been the good old days for him, says Hassan, but they were days of continued discrimination against minority voters for much of the country. Well, welcome back to the good old bad old days, I guess. Setting aside politics, if that's even possible here, Ignoring the specific, express, literal intent of Congress to literally rewrite the law, as Alito did in this case, and actually detailing a, a list of brand new, invented from whole cloth, so-called guideposts, as Alito did for the use uh, of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in future cases, guideposts that actually contradict what Congress actually wrote into the law, well, that's precisely the type of activist jurist legislating from the bench that Republicans pretend to abhor. At least when they wish to pretend that Democratic judicial appointees are doing it. While Hassan is justifiably angry about the stolen and packed right-wing Supreme Court ignoring the intent of congressional legislation, I am equally angered by the court ignoring the specific, literal, plain text words of the Constitution itself. In this case, the two-sentence 15th Amendment barring discrimination in voting due to race and expressly noting, as, as you'll find in the 15th Amendment, uh, amendment the second sentence of this two-sentence amendment, quote, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Not the judiciary, but the Congress. And there's a reason for that, as we will discuss momentarily with my guest, the great legal and Supreme Court reporter Mark Joseph Stern, who joins us to discuss that ruling made on the last day of the court's term this year, along with another made on the very same day in which the Republican high court in another final day, 6-3 to three ruling blocked California from overseeing and enforcing its own election laws by striking down a law that allowed the state's attorney general to learn the names of dark money donors to nonprofit organizations. We will discuss all of that and more in our annual Supreme Court term wrap-up conversation. Desi Doyne, we have one of those seems like every year right well, around this time. There is a term ending every year. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. And and I'll just say that yep. to preface all of this uh, reminder that elections have consequences. I guess it can't be said enough, can it? Nope. Uh, we So we will discuss our uh, end of term wrap and what it all means for a potentially even, uh, hate to say it, much darker next term at SCOTUS. So if you can uh, if you can tolerate that, I hope you'll stick with us. Um, <laughs> hey, listen, the truth is important. Meanwhile, the facts are important. speaking of dirty money in politics, uh, you may recall that right after the deadly Donald Trump incited insurrection attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, a number of big corporations 
made a big deal of saying that they were suspending campaign donations to congressional Republicans who had voted against the certification of the 2020 presidential election in which Joe Biden decisively defeated Donald Trump and for which to this day there remains no zero credible evidence suggesting otherwise. Those big corporations at the time, they got a whole lot of good publicity for their seemingly principled stand in support of American democracy. But a month or two later, in April, after the quarterly deadline for reporting political donations to the FEC, some journalists noted, uh, noticed that Toyota, among others, uh, Toyota was one of the groups who vowed to withhold donations to those Republicans. They had given at least eight members of Congress who had voted to overturn the election, they had given them money anyway. They and other companies like tinfoil maker Reynolds and vaccine maker Pfizer had also given to those Republicans, uh, including to political action committees like the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the main fundraising arm for GOP Senate candidates, or the National Republican Congressional Committee for House candidates. When called out on it at the time, some of the companies claimed that giving to the NRSC was not the same as giving to actual candidates, even though the NRSC's money is used specifically to elect those same candidates, including, by the way, NRSC chair Senator Rick Scott, one of the GOPers who voted against the certification of Biden's election on January 6th. More on Toyota in a moment, but this week, AP's David Klepper reports, as shockwaves spread across the country from the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, corporate America took a stand against the lies that powered the mob, or so it seemed. Dozens of big companies, citing their commitment to democracy, pledged to avoid donating money to the 147 lawmakers who objected to Congress's certification of Joe Biden's victory on the false grounds that voting fraud stole the election from then-President Donald Trump. It was a striking gesture, writes Klepper, by some of the most familiar names in business, but as it turns out, it was largely an empty one. Six months later, he says, many of those companies have now resumed funneling cash to political action committees that benefit the election efforts of lawmakers whether they objected to the election certification or not. When it comes to seeking political influence through corporate giving, business as usual is back, if it ever left. Klepper notes that Walmart, Pfizer, Intel, General Electric, and AT&T are among companies that announced their pledges on behalf of democracy in the days after Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. The companies now contend that donating directly to a candidate is not the same as giving to a PAC that supports them. That, however, is a distinction without a difference, Klepper notes, uh, and according to the campaign finance experts that he talked to. The company's argument also glosses over the fact that, in large measure, they did their giving through PACs before the pledge, rather than to individuals. So in many cases, actually, nothing has changed at all. They're doing exactly what they were doing before they made this phony pledge. Surprise! Walmart's moral stand, for example, 
lasted three months. In January, the retail giant said it would suspend all donations to the 147 lawmakers who objected to the results. But in April, they gave 30000 to the National Republican Congressional Committee. They gave an additional 30000 to the National Republican Senatorial Committee. The money given to the Republican groups by companies that pledged not to support objectors is small compared with the huge amounts of cash given overall. For example, Walmart's 60000 uh, given to the GOP Senate and House committees. That's just a fraction of the company's overall political spending on both parties last year. That topped $5 million. So there's likely much more money going out through these uh, uh, dark money groups that we don't even know about. In January, after the attack, General Electric said it would halt donations to lawmakers who voted against certification because, quote, we believe it's important to ensure that our future contributions continue to reflect our company's values and commitment to democracy. But that's not what happened. General Electric gave $15,000 each to the House and Senate GOP committees. AP's Klepper cites at least a dozen major corporations who did the same thing, including Altria, AT&T, Cigna, General Motors, Intel, JetBlue, Oracle, T-Mobile. No doubt there are many, many more. Moreover, corporate donations to the party committees do not include that so-called dark money contributions given to groups that are not required to disclose details publicly. Dark money is, of course, a favored vehicle for corporate giving. A uh, Stetson University Law School professor who studies corporate finance, uh, ca campaign finance, says, quote, it's completely frustrating from an accountability point of view. <laughs> yeah. Dan Weiner, a former senior counsel at the FEC who now works at the Brennan Center, said these pledges are largely symbolic. Adding, as we noted, after all of those companies issued their statements months ago, claiming to be pretending to be outraged by January 6th and the various voter suppression laws being adopted around the country, that if companies were serious about using their clout to support democracy, they would not just say they're not going to give to certain people. They would actually fund efforts to defeat these Republican measures that would make it harder to vote in many states. It's easy to say you're against something. I guess it's much more difficult to take proactive efforts to do something about it. It's easier to say you're against something and then simply do nothing or do the same thing you've always done rather than actually take action because, you know, you wouldn't want to get Republicans angry at you for, you know, doing the right thing to defend American democracy itself. Now, some companies did follow through on their pledge, AP notes, and they should be recognized for that. Hallmark, for instance, said it would not donate to objectors, and the records, at least to date, show no PAC donations by that company this year, uh, as well as no direct giving to the 147 objectors. Toyota, for its part, after being called out for saying one thing after January 6th and doing another just weeks later, well, they have now reversed themselves and now say that its political action committee will no longer contribute to the Republican legislators who voted against certifying Biden's election victory. That, of course, comes only after a social media backlash over the contributions in the first place. 
In a statement on Thursday, they said, We understand that the PAC decision to support select members of Congress who have contested the results troubled some stakeholders. We are actively listening to them and at this time have decided to stop contributing to those members of Congress. Last week, Axios had reported that Toyota led companies in donations to the 147 members of Congress. However, Toyota has said they will not seek refunds of the contributions that they have already made. Contribution data showed that 34 companies donated to the campaigns and leadership packs of one or more election objectors this year, according to Axios. If the Republican objectors on January 6th got their way, writes AP, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said that fraught night, quote, our democracy would enter a death spiral. And for a time, all but the 147 seemed to be on the side of the angels and corporations jostled to get on board with their pro-democracy pledges. But as AP notes, Apparently, the devil was in the details. Certainly was and is. McConnell, for his part, has since taken a U-turn on his own position from that fraught night by asking his Senate colleagues for a personal favor and voting to block the creation of a bipartisan independent commission to investigate and report on what actually happened on January 6th. His efforts a few weeks ago were successful in that. He also whipped his colleagues to block federal voting rights legislation, both before and since the deadly attack on democracy itself on January 6th, legislation that would counter voter suppression laws being enacted by Republicans in states across the country and legislation that would counteract the U.S. Supreme Court's gutting of the landmark Voting Rights Act back in 2013 and once again as appallingly just late last week. And that is where we will pick up things with Mark Joseph Stern after a quick break here as the fight to not only protect, but at this point quite literally save democracy against the rising forces of autocracy. Incredibly enough in this country, as that fight continues right here on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via bradblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yeah, the end of the line for the U.S. Supreme Court last week. Don't know if it was all right, however. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As a matter of fact, I would say it was definitely not all right. 
The U.S. Supreme Court, as it always does, wrapped up its latest term right on time at the end of June. So the court's currently nine justices could enjoy their lovely summer vacations without missing a beat. That even amid a year of pandemic that tested the court's ability to operate at all. The loss of one of its crucial nine justices just before the start of the term and her replacement with a far-right radical jurist just eight days before last year's presidential election, when Mitch McConnell's great con from 2016 was laid bare. He had famously, as you'll recall, as then Republican Senate Majority Leader after Antonin Scalia's death in February of that presidential election year, declared that it was just too close to a presidential election to seat a new justice until after the election, until after the American people made clear who they wanted as their new president in 2016 before we could name the next lifetime appointment to the high court. Almost a year before a presidential election, that was too close. But eight days before the next presidential election in 2020 with a Republican in the White House, that, of course, was just fine after Republicans unilaterally did away with the Senate filibuster in a matter of minutes when it came to lifetime appointments for Supreme Court justices. The GOP packed three new justices onto the court in total in votes that could not overcome the filibuster's traditional 60 vote bar otherwise. They did so in order to award themselves an enduring 6-3 to three advantage that finally came home to roost on the last day of this year's term when duly created, decades-old, landmark congressional legislation and indeed, in my opinion, the Constitution itself was rewritten and or ignored by an activist Republican majority, quite literally, legislating from the bench to undermine democracy by rewriting election law that had long safeguarded the right to vote. For much of the term, the court found occasional consensus and occasional strange bedfellows without rocking the boat too terribly much, even with rogue Trump appointee and accused sexual predator Justice Brett Kavanaugh boldly ignoring historical precedent from time to time, as if it didn't exist in his opinions. In a year that began with angry demands from Democrats to expand the court, to unpack it, after they saw it blatantly stolen from them by McConnell and his Senate Republicans, who were themselves willing to ignore and or overturn decades of Senate precedent and comity to do so. But on its final day of the term, the high court's 6-3 to three Republican majority did away with all of the niceties when it came to what is arguably the most important right of all, since it serves to protect all of the others, the right to vote. On that, a 6-3 to three majority, led by Justice Samuel Alito, ignored the Constitution itself, which expressly mandates that Congress... Not the judiciary or the Supreme Court in this case, but, quote, Congress shall have the power to enforce the 15th Amendment, barring the denial or abridgment by any state of the right to vote on account of race, color or previous condition of servitude. It's all in the Constitution. It's only two sentences. It's quite easy to read. Congress is clearly and literally and textually cited in the plain language of the two-sentence-long 15th Amendment as the body which, quote, 
shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That legislation, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, was then unceremoniously gutted once again as Justice Alito made up, seemingly out of whole cloth, new guidelines not specified by Congress for Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. He didn't kill Section 2, which bars voting that disproportionately affect minority voters. He just rewrote it. Legislating from the bench, as Republicans have spent years pretending to oppose just as they used to pretend to oppose the seating of new Supreme Court justices too close to an election, just as they used to pretend to believe in so-called constitutional textualism, the interpretation of a plain text reading of the Constitution, which, I would argue, Justice Alito blatantly ignored in his majority opinion that overturned a lower appeals court which had blocked discriminatory new voting restrictions in Arizona that mandated provisional ballots cast in the wrong precinct be tossed out entirely and which bar the collection of absentee ballots by third parties under the vaguely racist term for it used by Fox News and the right known as so-called ballot harvesting. Moreover, on its last day of the term, the court further allowed secret dark money to continue to flow unchecked into our elections, by blocking a law in California that allowed its attorney general to learn the identities of dark money donors to political action committees so that the state could ensure that election laws and limits were being followed. Well, not anymore. What all of this means for next year's term is now a topic of rampant speculation, of course, and yes, of concern. In any event, that's my quick take on this term, uh, on the just-completed past term at the nation's high court. Let's get a more informed one from someone who actually knows about this stuff as we are joined once again by our old friend and listener favorite, Mark Joseph Stern, longtime law and U.S. Supreme Court reporter for Slate.com. Oh, Mark, welcome back, my friend, to the show that seems to never end. Thank you. I am so happy to be here, and I must say, what a breath of fresh air your introduction was, given how many headlines I have seen over the last week or so that praise the Supreme Court for its moderation and compromise. It is driving me absolutely bonkers, and I am glad that you, unlike many other observers, understand what's really going on here. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I'm getting a sense of it. I mean, if you didn't know, if, if you saw only what happened uh, for the rest of the year, you might be able to say, oh, compromise and consensus, how... How nice and centrist of them. But if you look what they did, uh, you know, on that last day on really, uh, as you've written about the one law that or the one right, I should say, that protects all of the others. Yeah, this is a very troubling sign. So we're going to talk about all of this. Uh, we, we spoke a few days ago with longtime public uh, interest attorney Robert Brandon of the Fair Elections Center who detailed how these two laws in Arizona would disproportionately affect racial minorities in Arizona. But I'm still stuck on the mechanics of Justice Alito's ruling itself, how it will allow for other similar restrictions, voting restrictions in other states, and how it, uh, how it is that six right-wing justices on the court can even pretend anymore to be constitutionalists, despite, you know, disregarding... It's very clear. It's two sentences. The, the 15th Amendment mandating that Congress 
Congress shall have the power to enforce the 15th Amendment with legislation. So, Mark Joseph Stern, first, can you help me understand how the same people who claim to be constitutionalists, demanding a literal interpretation of the plain text of the Constitution, and who pretend to oppose judiciary activism and legislating from the bench, how do they justify this crap? Or do I have it completely wrong somehow? not have it wrong. I can help to explain what went down, but I don't think it'll make you any less angry. (laughs) That's okay. Proceed, Governor. So you're dead right about the 15th Amendment, and I I do think it's worth noting that all of the Reconstruction Amendments uh, expressly empower Congress um, to enforce them Mm -hmm. because the framers, after the Civil War, uh, of these amendments recognized um, that it was crucial not to just rely on the federal courts to protect rights, um, that Congress itself needed to play a leading role in the protection of constitutional rights, and particularly the protection of political equality uh, for, for people of all races. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then it was men of all races, but of course we've since evolved past then. And, you know, the, the grant of power here is sweeping. Uh, the, the 15th Amendment, as you noted, expressly mm-hmm. says that Congress can enforce yeah. this total ban on race discrimination and voting, however it sees fit with appropriate legislation. Uh, but the Supreme Court has really narrowed down uh, that sentence to mean almost nothing, uh, to say that Congress can do virtually nothing that the Constitution itself doesn't already do, rendering this grant of power to Congress sort of superfluous. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a, a, a terrifying example of what happens when the Supreme Court decides that that Congress can't legislate racial equality. Um, you know, the, you, you explained, I think, the upshot of this decision well, but there's, there's something lurking in the background behind uh, Justice Alito's opinion for the court. He hints at it several times. You have to look closely. But he suggests that Congress, if Congress had really tried um, to ban all voting restrictions that have a disproportionate impact on racial minorities, mm-hmm. that Congress would have violated the Constitution that Congress would have stripped states of their own constitutional authority to regulate elections. And so Congress couldn't possibly have wanted to do exactly what it said it wanted to do in the Voting Rights Act and ban laws that have a disparate impact on racial minorities. Mm -hmm. And I think when you grasp that point, his opinion makes a little bit more sense because he is actively gutting this law Mm -hmm. to avoid saying outright that if we read it clearly and properly, that in his eyes it would be unconstitutional. It's uh, it, it, it is so twisted, uh, frankly, uh, and and you know the gyrations they seem to have to go to to get to the results that they ultimately want. But you know when these cases are being argued before the Supreme Court and before the lower courts, you know there was a uh, you may have seen it. Someone tweeted, I think yesterday, saying, "Hey, Brad Friedman, you're the only one that I hear talking about." The, you know, Section 2, that second sentence of the 15th Amendment that says the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article. Do they even bother to argue that point before the court when they make these cases? Because this seems so crystal clear to me. And it was maddening back when it was Scalia making the case, you know, that simply ignoring uh, uh, that part of the uh, two sentence of 15th Amendment. 
Is that case even made at all when these cases are argued, or or are they only focusing on the disproportional uh, effect on racial minorities? So, look, the, the conservative justices have adopted this position of not just judicial supremacy, but judicial arrogance that the the framers of the Reconstruction Amendments couldn't possibly have intended uh, to give Congress power to go beyond the Supreme Court's own interpretation of the Constitution. And this is a theme that we see from conservative justices over and over again, where they say, we are the ones who decide what counts as a right. We are the ones who decide what counts as legal and illegal. Mm. And that Congress has nothing to say. Congress can only enforce our own rulings. What five of us say on this Supreme Court overrules what everyone says in Congress and in the, in the elected Democratic branches. Um, and that has led to this twisted position where we really don't see a lot of litigators actually speaking about the text of the 15th Amendment mm-hmm. um, because the court has sort of cordoned off that option. The court has said, this is not how constitutional interpretation works. We sit at the top of the hierarchy. We get to decide, and all Congress can do is enforce our decisions. And because the Supreme Court has said that the 15th Amendment means almost nothing, you don't see a lot of litigators citing it when they argue these cases before the court because they know it's a losing cause. That is just astounding to me. I mean, it is as clear. Like I say, it's a two-sentence amendment. One sentence talks about the right of citizens to not be uh, have their uh, right to vote abridged on account of race. The other one says Congress shall enforce it. It couldn't be clearer, especially to those liars who pretend to be constitutional originalists, textualists, the plain language. I mean, you don't even need to be a lawyer to understand that one. It is maddening. Uh, Mark, uh, how does, uh, in any event, this uh, six to three opinion on voting rights, how is this now going to affect other similar laws that are being adopted by Republicans around the country to restrict voting? Uh, Bob Brandon suggested, and I think I've seen Mark Elias, the uh, Democratic election attorney, suggest this as well, that many of the challenges against these new laws are constitutional challenges as opposed to using the Voting Rights Act, which has now seemingly been hamstrung. What's your thought on that? Is uh, the decision last week going to complicate and make some of these uh, lawsuits against these new laws much more difficult? I think so. And I want to say that I understand where Mark Elias uh, and other litigators are coming from. You know, they need to stay in the fight and they need to keep uh, their supporters and their donors optimistic about the uh, possibility of victory in some of these cases. They don't gain anything from uh, surveying the damage and giving up. I understand that. But at the same time, I do think that they are wrong. And I do mm-hmm. think that they are being a bit Pollyanna-ish uh, about the, the reality of this decision. I mean, the Supreme Court's constitutional jurisprudence regarding the right to vote is so weak at this point that it almost doesn't exist. Frankly, I don't think that there are five justices on this court, maybe not even four, who believe that the Constitution protects the right to vote in the first place. So the Voting Rights Act is really all we had, and I do fear that this decision has effectively gutted what remained of the VRA and opened the door to federal courts upholding pretty much every voter suppression law that was passed in the wake of the 2020 election. I mean, let me just give you two moves 
moves that Justice Alito pulls in this opinion Mm -hmm. that seem designed to doom all of these challenges. So the first thing Alito says is that any voting law today needs to be compared to voting laws that were prevalent in 1982. (laughs) And if there's a voting law today that Republicans are attacking, say, absentee voting, Republicans are cutting absentee voting Mm -hmm. in Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Alito says, well, if that wasn't happening in 1982, then it's perfectly fine for it to be slashed today because Congress intended to freeze voting rights in time in 1982 and never progress beyond what was happening then. Well, in 1982, there was no absentee voting, almost no absentee voting. There was Mm -hmm. almost no early voting. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of states forced everyone to vote in person on Election Day. And so what Justice Alito has done by making up this rule, we should be clear, this is totally fabricated. Nowhere in the text. Justice Alito has set this baseline that, that allows for incredibly restrictive voting laws and forces courts to ignore the fact that these cuts to early and absentee voting are actually targeting racial minorities and have a disproportionate impact on them. States can turn around and say, well, that doesn't matter because this wasn't allowed in 1982, <laughs> so it's perfectly fine for us to outlaw it's it It's made up out of whole cloth. It, is in, yeah. it, it is the very, seems to be the very definition of legislating from the bench. I mean, he seems to literally be writing legislation, writing these guidelines about how we're supposed to determine in the future if these laws uh, will pass muster, guidelines that were not in the Voting Rights Act in any of its amendments, including all the way up to 19. 82 I you know uh, we, you know we have okay we have had terrible rulings by the uh, high court before you know things like Dred Scott comes to mind among others let's pretend for a second the Democrats can get their act together and do the right thing and kill the filibuster in order to expand and unpack the court uh, just as Republicans killed the filibuster to pack it in the first place with uh, three justices uh, over the past few years. Can opinions such as Alito's uh, on the Voting Rights Act, can it be overturned or rolled back by an expanded court? Or are we stuck now with his newly invented guidelines for use with laws such as the the, the Voting Rights Act for, for time immemorial? So, look, in theory, Congress could overturn this decision. In theory, Congress could say Alito got it wrong. He warped the text of this law, which he did. Let's be clear. The law says very explicitly that any voting restriction that results in disproportionate uh, impact Mm -hmm. on racial minorities is illegal. But setting that aside, it doesn't have to be on purpose. It doesn't have to be not have to be on purpose. The law could not be clearer about this fact. Thank you. Uh, But, you know, um, Justice Alito's uh, opinion is, on its face, simply interpreting a statute, which generally means, as it does here, that Congress could go back and say, you interpreted it wrong, so we're going to pass a new statute or amend the old one that overturns your decision. However, and I really think this this is the crux of the matter, there is this undercurrent that I alluded to earlier in Alito's opinion, where he suggests that this is almost an act of constitutional avoidance, that he is dismantling and manipulating and warping this law, uh, not because he thinks it's the best reading of the text, Mm -hmm. but because he thinks that a broader reading, that a reading that is more protective of the right to vote, would be unconstitutional, because the justices on the right are still in the mindset of the pre-Civil War South, 
they still believe that states have total control over voting, and they think it would violate the Constitution for Congress to pass a law that, say, bans all state restrictions on voting that disproportionately harm racial minorities. So even if Congress went back and said, Sam Alito, you're incorrect, I fear that the court would simply, by a six to three vote, say, okay, well, guess what? If that's the case, then this law is unconstitutional. Yeah. And instead of dismantling it, we're just going to strike it down. Which, and this is my concern. This is my fear because I'm looking, you know, I think the day of or the day after the uh, this decision from the Supreme Court came down, the DOJ came out and said, please, please, please pass new voting rights laws so that we can enforce them. Congress, of course, has the For the People Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Advance. Advancement Act, you know, now in the pipeline that might restore some voting rights that have been peeled away by the Supreme Court and by these Republican states around the country. But, you know, given what we've seen from this uh, past term from this court and their willingness to just ignore precedent and or rewrite laws and or ignore the Constitution itself, is there any reason to believe that those new laws, even if they are passed by some miracle by this Congress, which would have to reform the filibuster to do it, is there any reason to believe that they would fare any better before this same radical six to three majority court? No, there is no reason to believe that. In fact, I have been saying for a very long time, yep. uh, unfortunately, and not not you know <laughs> with any delight, yeah. that this Supreme Court will strike down large portions, if not all, of both the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting right. Rights Act. The. Uh... I knew this would be nothing but a cheery conversation today, Mark. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, not your fault, believe me. Uh, you're just joining the everyday uh, uh, stream of broadcast uh, joy. The uh, the ruling on, on, on the Voting Rights Act has gotten a fair amount of attention. The decision to block the California law that allowed the state's attorney general to learn the identities of dark money donors, that's received a lot less coverage. What should we know about that case, how it was decided. And again, here you have a state, you know, deciding for themselves how they want to run their elections. But because I guess it's a blue state, that one gets shut down. What does it mean uh, moving forward now for states who would like to restore some measure of oversight on campaign finance in the wake of, you know, Citizens United and other terrible Supreme Court rulings uh, on this in recent years? Yeah, um, so I, I think that you're asking the exact right question. This case is technically about donors to nonprofits, including political nonprofits like Americans for Prosperity, which is a Koch group. Mm -hmm. But it's all shadow boxing over, uh, over election campaign finance disclosure laws, laws that require people who have uh, given more than a certain amount of money to a candidate or a campaign or a cause um, to have their names disclosed, usually to both uh, election authorities and to the general public. Recall that that was considered the saving grace in Citizens United. In fact, by an mm -hmm. eight-to-one vote, the Supreme Court upheld the disclosure requirements there yeah. and praised disclosure laws and said that they were vital to democracy and self-governance and said that as long as we know where the money is coming from, there's no reason to believe that money will buy elections or corrupt the electoral process. But now, just 11 years later, 
the Supreme Court has turned around and in this case really jacked up the standard of review that courts will use to evaluate disclosure laws, not just those involving donors to charities, but also those involving campaign finance. Uh, What Chief Justice Roberts' opinion does, it's kind of like a one-two punch. He first says that in order to challenge a disclosure law, you don't even have to prove that you're subject to harassment or retaliation or any kind of thing like that Mm -hmm. uh, if your name is disclosed. That's a new rule. It used to be that you had to put forward some evidence uh, that you need to hide your identity uh, in order to even get into the courthouse and fight a disclosure law. The second thing he does is say, and once you've challenged this disclosure rule, the courts are going to subject it to something that looks a lot like strict scrutiny. So the law has to be really carefully, narrowly tailored. And Robert suggests that, you know, the public's general interest in learning about the identities of people who are donating huge amounts of money to some cause, mm-hmm. that that's not really a, a strong interest, uh, nor a narrowly tailored law. And if you move that over to the campaign finance context, you can immediately see the court in a few years saying, well, you know, $1,000 isn't that much money. Uh, there's no compelling interest in the state disclosing donors who give $1,000 to a candidate and then saying $5,000 and then saying $20,000 yeah. and then saying a million dollars and then so on and so yeah. on. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's why all of this, you know, continues to come back. And I'll, I'll get to it in a moment with you here, Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, you know, on the need, I, I see no way out of this, uh, this mess, this swirling uh, uh, mess that we seem to now be in, other than expansion somehow of the court. But, you know, uh, one of the compromises that uh, Joe Manchin, West Virginia senator, uh, agrees to in the For the People Act, if it can ever be passed, is to include the Disclose Act within it to require more disclosure of dark money. But again, seems to me there's no reason to believe that laws like that would also not be struck down, uh, given the this particular partisan makeup of the, the high court, if it remains the same as it is now. You know, it looked for a while, as we've been talking over the past few months, Mark, uh, like the court was, they were being very careful, they were being very cautious in many of their decisions, working hard to find consensus or some form or another that you know, couldn't be derided or dismissed as simply a far right six to three stolen majority opinion, as you know, I would do. Was this a purposeful decision to then wait until the last cases to unleash that full majority? And if so, why did they do that? So, look, these were both uh, very divided decisions, right, that pit the conservative six against the liberal three. And so to some degree, I think they were just working up until the bell. They ended up going into July. They don't normally do that. That was very unusual. It suggests that there was a lot of battling behind the scenes. But setting that aside, I I do strongly suspect that the court was waiting until the last day to hand down these two blockbusters that are so bitterly divided along political lines. And I suspect the reason why is that by waiting and by releasing those uh, ostensibly more moderate decisions earlier, uh, the court had control over the narrative. And the narrative that we saw coming out all throughout June was that the court was reasonable and moderate and was interested in compromise and not a hard right turn that that many observers had expected. And once that narrative was set down, it was really hard to uproot, even after a disastrously conservative political decision like the Voting Rights Act case. 
many, many court watchers and commentators and analysts mm. stuck to their original assessment, which mm. was premature, which jumped the gun, yep. but it was what it was. And so I think that, you know, whether this was Robert's plan or whether it just shook out this way, the court wound up building itself a narrative that well suits its own purposes and I think misleads a lot of the country about the deeply political nature of this judicial body. Let me take a... Uh, <clears throat> Let me take a quick break here, uh, speaking with Mark Joseph Stern, uh, the great legal reporter from uh, Slate.com, uh, to come back and talk about where we go from here after this uh, term that so many seem to have misinterpreted. And all you got to do is look at that last day to see kind of where this may be going. We'll take a quick break. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the retirement or not of Justice Stephen Breyer. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Enough. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com where he covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, and much more with our focus today on the U.S. Supreme Court at the end of their term last week. Mark, the last time we talked a few weeks ago, we were looking to the final day of the term as the day when most justices historically announced their retirement from the court. 82-year-old Democratic appointee Justice Stephen Breyer decidedly did not announce his retirement that day on the last day of, of the term last week. What does that mean? Is there still a chance that he, he could announce his retirement over the, over the summer? Or is there now a chance that we have to look to next June in time for him to be replaced before Democrats potentially lose their majority in the Senate next November in order to replace him? So Breyer can step down at any time, and I encourage him to. Yes, if you're please. listening to this right now, yes. Steve, please step down at this moment, contingent upon the confirmation of your successor. Mm -hmm. uh, but... I really suspect that this was the window for him and that it has closed and that he does not plan to step down this term and that he plans to serve another term into 2022. Um, why, I cannot say for certain, but I suspect that he is vastly overestimating the indispensable nature of his work, that he thinks he is a much canny, savvier operator than he really is, and that he thinks the court will be a poorer place without him, and also that he thinks he has a really cool job and he doesn't want to give it up. And I guess I would add that maybe he thinks all of the all 50 of the senators in the U.S. Senate are going to stay alive and well and be just fine through next June, after which I guess we now know that it's allowed to ram through anyone you want. You don't have to go overcome a filibuster. You don't have to wait until the elections are over. You can just push in someone new to the seat, you know, no matter how many days it is before a national election. But. You know, again, that assumes that all 50 senators on the Democratic side stay well between now and then. And that's a that's a risk that I would not personally run. But I guess Stephen Breyer doesn't mind. This is especially worrying considering McConnell, uh, who recently suggested very clearly that, you know, he is unlikely to seat 
any nominee to the high court named by a Democratic president if Republicans re regain the the, uh, the majority. Uh, here uh, is McConnell just a few weeks ago on Right Wing Talk Radio uh, with Hugh Hewitt. If you regain the majority in 2022, would the rule that you applied in 2016 to the Scalia vacancy apply in 2024 to any vacancy that occurred then? No, I think it's highly unlikely. In fact, no, I don't think either party, if it controlled, if it were different from the president, would confirm a Supreme Court nominee in the middle of an election. If you are back as the Senate Republican leader, and I hope you are, and a Democrat retires at the end of 2023 and they're 18 months, would they get a fair shot at a hearing? Not a radical, but a normal mainstream liberal. Well, we'd have to wait and see what, what happens. Yeah, we'd have to wait and see. Mark, yeah. uh, is it fair to say, as I believe you've written, that we're at the point where a Republican Senate will never seat any justice to the high court if they control the majority in the Senate uh, and that uh, appointee is uh, named by a Democrat? So not only do I think that's true, that a Senate Republican majority will never confirm another Democratic president's nominee to the Supreme Court, I don't think that a GOP-controlled Senate will ever again confirm a Democrat's appeals court nominee. Yes. Um, when Republicans seized the Senate in 2014, they, they effectively stopped confirming Obama's many nominees to many open seats mm -hmm. in the federal courts of appeals. For Obama's last two years, he was only able to get maybe two or three confirmed, a mm -hmm. tiny number. I really don't think that that will ever happen again. And uh, I think that Stephen Breyer is delusional if he thinks that a Republican-controlled Senate will allow Biden to name his replacement, which is, again, why I think if he's listening, he should step down right now, because Mitch McConnell is not a man who is willing to let a single uh, powerful judge slip through a Senate that he himself controls. Which is why I wanted to play that clip, just on the outside chance that Stephen Breyer is listening, because <laughs> maybe he's been too busy to notice uh, what is going to happen if there's a Republican uh, majority uh, in, in Congress when he finally, if he finally decides to uh, uh, to to, to retire. Which also brings us back, uh, Mark, is the movement to unpack the court by expanding it? Is it now all but dead? Or is that effort somehow still alive, if on life support at this time? And, and, and frankly, what would it take to bring it back to life right now? No, you know, I don't think it's dead, but I do think that it is uh, on life support as it has been for a while. You know, once Joe Manchin said that he was totally against expanding the court to balance it out again, that was it, right? That was it for the time being. He's the 50th vote, and without him, Democrats have basically nothing. But, uh, you know, next term, the term that will begin next October and end next June, is winding up to be one of the most catastrophic terms for progressives, for the left, in history, in the entire mm -hmm. history of the country. I mean, we've already got guns and abortion. We could soon have affirmative action. We'll have school choice or specifically state funding for religious education. Uh, we'll have more really hot-button stuff on the docket. Yep. Um, and, and so I think that this time next year, we may be having a more serious conversation about court expansion than we are right now. I just hope that it's a conversation we have alongside the confirmation of Stephen Breyer's successor. Yeah, well, that would be nice. And I also hope we have it alongside a Democratic majority in the Senate, which there is no guarantee that this time next year we will be looking at that sort of a 
uh, a majority. There's a lot of really old Democrats right now in the Senate, and I'm quite concerned about it. As uh, you, Mark, and Dahlia Lithwick, our friend, the, the great Dahlia Lithwick, uh, your colleague over at Slate, uh, you guys wrapped up a, a year in review of sorts uh, with a piece ominously headlined, The Supreme Court's Conservatives Have Laid the Groundwork for the Devastation to Come. Well, you guys call them conservatives for some reason, but uh, is this uh, really what we are looking for? Have they been holding their fire in in some of these uh, decisions over the past year that you now expect all bets are off when we're looking at the next term? Yeah, I mean, this was a terrible term, and yet I think that in a few decades we may look back and see it as the calm before the storm. I think that the conservatives, and you're right, I mean, conservatives is really kind of shorthand for Republicans, yes. right? They are Republican justices. Yes, let's call them that, because conservatives have a conservative reading of the Constitution, which obviously Sam Alito does not, but yes, yeah, go ahead. precisely. Yes. So, so the Republican justices <laughs> are setting the trajectory, and not just for next year but for the coming decades. And, uh, you know, as bad as this term was, again, I think that, you know, people are, are viewing it as a, a kind of relief that the court didn't go all out insane, that the court didn't immediately pull the trigger on every item, every priority on the, on the Republican agenda. But that's because these justices will be serving into the 2050s. Trump's justices are in their late 40s and early 50s. They could be on the bench for another 30 to 40 years. And so they are in no immediate rush to get no. everything done in one term. The idea that nine months' worth of votes from Amy Coney Barrett is enough to declare her a moderate or an institutionalist seems utterly farcical to me. And yet that seems to be what's uh, happening with a lot of the coverage at the end of the term. Oh, Amy Coney Barrett didn't turn out to be as radical as, as many feared. Everything's fine. Why worry? Well, if you wonder why we should worry, we always have Mark Joseph Stern to turn to. He is, of course, the uh, legal uh, reporter, indispensable legal reporter over at Slate.com. You can find him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. And Mark, even though the term is over, I hope we still get to find some sort of an excuse to have you back uh, in the months and weeks ahead. Hopefully you're not going on as long of a summer vacation as the rest of the Supreme Court. No, those of us with real jobs can't afford to do that. Though you deserve it. I should say you deserve such a vacation. Nonetheless, if you don't take one, we're going to uh, bother you during it. Thank you, my okay. friend. Always great speaking with you, and uh, wish us all luck. <laughs> Thanks so much. Good luck, and it's always a pleasure, Brad. Thank you, sir. Okay, we have got to go. Uh, my <laughs> yes. thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, or any other, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by you kind listeners who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to keep us on your public airwaves doing what we try to do at least five days a week. All right, that's it. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the bradblog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>